So hi, Clement. What was your first computer? And the first question is, of course, Clement, is it r right pronounced? I don't think so, right? Well, uh, the French pronunciation would be Clément. Clément. But yeah, I, I spent a few years in Germany, so I'm good with Clement. Okay. Clément, what was your first computer? My first computer was an Olivetti S633 with, I believe, two megabytes of RAM. Um, so... Something that was quite advanced for that time, but I had a lot of fun on it. Uh, it was DOS. Um, later, we had Windows 3.1, maybe 3.0. But yes, uh, that was my first first computer. And I, I started developing on, on, on that machine. What's interesting, um, I got Olivetti laptop. It was probably 1998, and it was used one. It was extremely cheap. It was a very small machine and was really surprised back then that they were able to build such a small machines. It was Olivetti DOS laptop, no, without any windows. So it was just, I just tried to do something sensible with it and play with it. But this was interesting. Um, and when you started with Olivetti, when was it roughly? It was in 1994. Wow. So you are that young. Yeah, yeah, well, yes, I was young and we just moved to a new house and uh, my parents say, okay, we are going to buy him a computer because, yeah, it's to compensate the move from a city to another one. Ah. And there I am. So, yeah, it's, and surprisingly, this machine lasts for uh, maybe seven or eight years, uh, <laughs> which is not a lifetime of modern machines these days. So it's kind of interesting. Oh, strong and how robust it was at that time okay so i would ask my parents whether we could move somewhere else you know so then we i get even <laughs> more and more computers right this would be the nice strategy <laughs> no, it, it worked only once unfortunately but yeah it was it was a nice machine it was yeah it's all a uh, few years after that i had one of those um uh hold uh, 56 boats modern uh, modem mm -hmm. with uh, the noise I'm really missing this this small melody when you were connecting for the first time to yeah. the internet. That was uh, that was probably in two uh, before that, probably 1999 or 1998. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that that was also um, a big switch because yeah, for the first time you you were about to to see all their computers because in my in my place I only have one, so it was the first time I actually experienced um, uh, distributed systems. Yeah, and at that time it was whoa, not as well, not as popular, not as powerful as as today. So yeah, the web was kind of at the beginning of the web. Mm -hmm. And I hey, remember and uh, I which uh, which I which modem do, did you had? Was it US Robotics? It, uh, it was yeah, it, I guess it was. It was a blue one. Yeah, so yes, and US Robotics. I don't remember the reference, but. Yeah. yeah, it was robotics. Because I experimented um, with the modems a lot, and there were some modems which were a little bit faster than the others. This was the trick. I think the US Robotics could was able to deliver 33.6 kilobit per second, I think, and the norm was 28. So I wanted to have the, you know, the robotics. I forgot actually why, but it was a little bit faster than the others. And what you did with the Olivetti, if you turn it on, what was your first action? Have you started a game or tried to, to hack something? Or uh, Well, I played a few games. Well, games that was Prince of Persia. Of course. Uh, such kind of things. So very old uh, vintage games, which seems to be quite popular these days. So yeah. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of funny to go back to such kind of things. Um, then relatively quickly, I wanted to do um, a bit of code, not really to develop a software or a game, but mostly to automate some some stuff I was doing um, very often, like uh, well, starting a game. So you start with a simple script that goes to the right directory, start a game. Think uh, on the Windows 2, like, yeah, go to my, at that time it was the beginning of MP3, so go to my MP3 players and start playing uh, a song. So that was really more like I wanted to automate things more like I want to do software. Okay. Hey, but, what, mu what, what music was it back then? Classic music? Um, <laughs> no, that was Rolling Stones. So ah, Rolling, Rolling Stones. Stone. Yeah, so um, Rolling Stones. Uh, Jumping Jack okay. Flash, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that was my type of music at that time. But no, and 
it was really automations. And actually, then I, I did my, my, my studies and I didn't want to do uh, anything with computer. Computer was, was just for fun and games and music and things like that, not really to work with. But um, let's say that my skills in the other major disciplines were not good enough, so I had to find something where oh. I was good. And so it was more like, okay, so if I cannot do math, if I cannot do physics, uh, okay, computer. So this is a great strategy, actually, right? So tell your kids, well, if you don't learn anything, you know, go out and play. If it, you know, if you get, you know, <laughs> bad, um, how to call it? Uh, notes, not notes, you know, the uh, bad, um, yeah, notes. Then you can still, you know, study computer science, right? So this would be the fallback strategy. Yeah, yeah. I would prefer my daughter don't do this, but we will see. <laughs> I <would prefer> see. <laughs> Um, a we question: see, but... Have you started uh, programming before the study, or you were just you know automating things and just playing with the computer? Automating things using basics were before my studies, and I don't know if well, I believe it's almost everywhere the same. When I started my studies and studying learning software and computers in general, that was a lot of math mm -hmm. and very little of code. Yeah, which was kind of. Very weird from my I had stuff in basic to okay, we need to prove that this program completes, we oh, need to yeah. prove that this yeah, such kind of thing. So it was quite different and that's why for a few years I didn't really want to pursue this uh career because what what they were teaching us um was really different from what actually I was doing and what I'm doing these days. It's yeah. still very important. It's a background that I'm really happy to have. Um, and um, I use it mostly every day, but yeah, it's it's quite different. Funny thing is that later in my career, I well, I became a teacher. So oh. <laughs> I was the guy that was teaching these mathematical concepts that we use in computers. So that was kind of a. Hmm. Remember when I was on the other side of of the classroom? I didn't really enjoy that class very well. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Do you remember big O notation? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I'm still using it. So big O notation are still something I use uh, uh, regularly. So yes, I remember that. Um, everything, something that all because the logic operators. Back to big O notation. So uh, we learned that. I remember right now. You know, the professor showed us the big O notation and uh, two nested loops, which is of course simple. But then I thought, okay, what we, when we get if statement inside a loop? Aha. Then I went back to the prof, and he couldn't answer. And then I lost immediately interest. It's okay, what the hell? I, I mean, two loops, I immediately get it. So I don't need your big big O notation. But what if it becomes a little bit more complex and there was basically no answer? And I, you know, I try to... to, to um, so what's your take on that? So big O notation. How to compute more complex stuff? Is it actually possible? Or is it... Um... I use all big O notations to uh, generally uh, compute the complexity of the worst case. So in your yeah. case of your if statement, that would be the branch that is the most expensive every single time. Uh, Let's okay. imagine that the, the two iteration always goes to the branch that is the most complex and most cool. uh, higher so, complexity. So why you weren't my professor back then, you know? This would solve, you know, my, my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was completely disappointed. This would be the great answer. He couldn't just, he couldn't answer. So, okay, wh what the hell? I mean, this is completely useless then, but your answer is perfect. Yeah, perfect. Well, the, the tricky thing is why we do uh, big old notations. We want to do big old notations to have an understanding about the cost of an algorithm, yeah. about how much time, how much, uh, how expensive it would be. But the worst case, in the worst case, because yeah. in the in, in the great case, most of the time it's oh yeah, it's return true, boom done, yeah, perfect. Okay, but that, that has no interest. What so, you want to know is what's your maximum response so, time. Let's see. After ten minutes talking with you, I I got after. 25 years big O notation. I don't have to... <laughs> I save properly, you know, 10 hours of reading books. Great. So let's see what happens later. So um, you, you started uh, studying and uh, you didn't like math. And... You... Uh, no, math didn't like me. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That, this, this is, opposite, yeah. yeah, this is also uh, in my case uh, still, but now it changes as I speak with you. But um, have you started programming at during this university time? Yeah, actually... Um... I, I was really, really lucky. Um, actually, I started my studies where I'm living right now. It's a very small city with a, a very small university. Where is uh, it? I had, it's Valence okay. in France. Um, where is so it in France? Uh, is it in the, near... in the mountains or on the shore? 
It's near Lyon. It's not okay. so south of Lyon, uh, not too far from Grenoble. Actually, okay. the university is just um, a satellite from Grenoble University. Okay. And the, the, well, I really had the chance that one of the classes that were offered was a class that was shared between the first years and the second years of university. Mm-hmm. So with uh, older people that did all the first class. But this class was about internet. That, okay. the, I remember the name, internet. Wow. So, wow, 24 hours, and at the end, you understand internet. 25 cool. years later, I still don't. But, <laughs> <laughs> but and in this class, the, the, the goal was to really understand all the um, internet technologies. Uh, that was what? That was Netscape. That yeah. was a big JavaScript. That was CGI. That was uh, a bit of PHP. Um, Perl, a lot of Perl for CGI, and it's where really where I started seeing the the, the potential of um, of computers and or and the beginning of distributed systems in in the sense. Um, and so in this class, you need to create a few uh, websites, um, a few web applications, well, really small. And even at the end, we started uh, looking at uh, Java applets. That was just the the beginning of Java applets. Didn't really work well. Never sure it, it worked well any time, but uh, <laughs> at that time it was really, really, yeah, kind of slow. tricky and yeah. slow. Um, so JVM running inside your, your well, almost inside your browser yeah. was kind of weird and all the NMI code. Uh, stuff that I didn't under, understood at that time. It, for me, it was, okay, uh, let's try to, to use this. Uh, yeah. The UI can be interesting and it was AWT, um, but Yes, that class was actually the, the game changer for me in the sense oh, yeah, we can do cool stuff. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, then uh, I uh, decided to stop physics and to, to start more uh, computer stuff. And uh, I continue here for one year, then back, uh, then Grenoble, where I really was only computers, but again, with a lot of mathematical um, baggage. Uh, and most of my class was about uh, math. Funny thing is... Uh, most well because of the history of Grenoble, a lot of our class was about compilers, um, uh, logics, semantics. Mm-hmm. So very very abstract and not really well. Let's say uh, hands on the keyboards. The, the the really development exercise was kind of minimal and was only to most of the time was just yeah very simple little world of try to get something compiling in ADA, which is okay. challenging. Yeah. <laughs> this language is challenging, but if it's compiled, it's not far from being right, but um, it's, a, it's a funny language. Um, I, I, I thought this is the Scala, you know, language. <laughs> um, actually, it, it has some, uh, some similarities with Scala, yes. Yeah. And, and ADA, we, we did a lot of ADA, and that was my primary language at school for years. And I started learning Java only probably my uh, last years at university. Okay. And oh, which uh, which version yeah. of Java? With which version you started? You know, remember that? So, actually, I started all my uh, applets and things like that. That was Java 1.1, 1.2. Probably okay. 1.2, because you need class loaders. Um, okay. And then, for years, I didn't touch it much. And at the end, that was 1.4, 1.3, 1. 1.4. Okay. I did a lot of 1.4, so arrays and uh, generics came very late in my in my, okay. my um, that, that that was uh, quite fun to see a language evolve so much in this short amount of time. Yeah. Um, I did Delphi too a little bit, most for the UI uh, stuff. I did a lot of .NET. Um, at that time, too. Why? At and the university? Yeah, that was... Uh, I was very quickly at university, I started to be uh, interested in the most hated technology in the Java space for years, OSGI. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, should stop, we should stop the conversation right now, you know. <laughs> um, uh, well, at that time, I was quite interested by everything related to what now we call IoT, but that was... Okay. At that time, name machine to machines and um, uh, ubiquitous computing or such kind of thing. So it was not named IoT yet. But uh, OSGI for IoT is fine. 
I had other, another problem with OSGI. In my project, we are often forced to use OSGI for business project, you know, and there was not even a use case to run multiple bundles at the same time. So you had a huge, you know, class loader overhead and versioning overhead. And at the end of the day, you shipped everything at once. And I always ask the question, you know, why you need that? We could just deliver one jar. It would be everything became easier. And uh, and no one could answer the, you know, the question back then. And then it died in business projects. For IoT projects or application service or building platforms, I, I, uh, OSGI is great. If you take a look, you know, on Open Liberty, how how great it is just because of OSGI. But I'm, you know, a business developer. It doesn't make any sense in my eyes to use OSGI inside a microservice or inside a desktop app. This is what what we sometimes we're forced to do. So it's actually interesting because I came up almost to the same conclusion in the sense that it's a great, it's a very powerful deployment platform. Um, it has really nice capabilities. Um, uh, for deployment, for uh, the service layers, for security and things like that. But what you said is absolutely right. Most of the applications don't need to have the possibility to run two versions of a bundle at the same time. It actually makes everything much more complex. Yeah. And while OSGI does this check at runtime, it can be done at build time. You can immediately, during exactly. your deployment or during your build, inside Maven, Ants, or whatever, rather, check to say, oh, you are depending on commands, I.O., uh, 2.1, whatever version yeah. is the uh, re- most recent one, while the target is only 2.0. So mm-hmm. what do you want to do? Do you want to force it uh, and see what happens at runtime? It's generally a bad idea, especially mm-hmm. if runtime is production. Or do you want to uh, update or something like that? That can be done at build time, not at runtime. And actually, some of these ideas, we... we, we <laughs> Uh, we are now seeing them in, in Quarkus uh, because we do yeah. so, some kind of logic. Yeah. Um, but that, that is almost 20 years later uh, because I started with GI in 2001, 2002. Exactly. Um, uh, so, and I did, uh, I did OSGI code till 2010, something like this. Oh. So I did a lot of OSGI, yeah. For, for JBoss modules uh, or what you did? No, no, no. Uh, at that time, I was not working for Red Hat. So I was... Um, I was involved in the Apache Felix project. Okay. Uh, I did my own uh, injection framework for SGI that was handling the dynamics mm-hmm. um, um, and all what what could happen at that time. Um, and the, the reason it is actually fun is I wanted to do IoT. So SGI makes yeah. sense. But at the same time, I started experiencing the, uh, the challenges of distributed systems. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do IoT was on the distributed system side because that looks very, very hard. So OSGI was perfect, except that later I understood that OSGI uh, is a local framework with all the distributed systems issues built in. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I, I, you cannot escape. Okay. Um, and, well... So at at the university, what I just wanted to to see is at the university, you learned uh, Perl, PHP, and Delphi, right? And .NET. Mm -hmm. And what happened after university? What did you start to work as what? Where or Um, what What was it? At university, my first internship was was actually trying to implement OSGI on .NET, which didn't handle well because of the class learning differences. Um, How you got this idea? I mean, just you did it for money or was it your, I mean... No, that was more a, a research project okay. um, because I, I wanted to do research at that time. And that looks an, an interesting challenge. Like, okay, we have a GI, we have .NET that looks very interesting and looks quite popular. So if we could provide the same kind of facilities for .NET, can be quite interesting yeah. to see .NET code for um, um, uh, set-up box, yeah. uh, IoT, and things like that. And yeah, the... The granularity of the class loading and all the loading mechanism was not exactly the same, so it it caused a few issues. Um, it may have changed in between because I didn't really follow um, uh, what hap- was what happening on .NET. Mm-hmm. Um, I did uh, quite some Corba. Wow! Uh-huh. And actually, yeah, the, the funny thing is that yeah, Jacob, uh, but uh, not only Jacob, um, um, Orbix, uh, something called Torba, Orbix, oh, Visigenix. Um, Exactly. Um, and the fun part is when I was starting doing uh, distributed system at school, it was boring. Yeah. Um, ISO, ARP, yeah. 
all the theory and things like that. And when you start touching the Java code, you do RMI and you say, yeah, okay. It was at the time when you really need to uh, to generate the skeleton and the stuff yeah. with uh, RMIC and things like that. It was not yet integrated. Um, but with JDK 1.3, we got dynamic proxies. Then it became easier, right? Because then we can say, yeah. yeah. And then we look yeah, up and you are set. Yeah. Much, yeah. Exactly. And the fun thing is, uh, I think that was in my first year of university. I had the, the chance and even the privilege to, to go out in a class with Sasha Krakowiak, mm-hmm. one of the main distributed systems and middleware um, um, researcher. Oh, okay. uh, that was uh, 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 teaching uh, in Vulnerable. And while it was really, really theoretical about Lampard clock and um, Paxos and consensus issues, it was amazing how interesting it makes this class. Okay. And after that, I really wanted to say, well, that looks a whole new landscape. It's yeah. not RMI. So distributed system is not only about RMI. It's really about all these problems. And very quickly, when you want to, to start working a little bit um, uh, in well, to make some money, uh, well, you use a framework of that, of that time, and the yeah. framework of that time was Corba. Yeah. And uh, so I did uh, I did a bit of Corba. Um, I still regret it sometimes. Well, not often. <laughs> but... No, seriously. No, seriously. If you if you look at Corba, so it was a little bit. Over-engineered. I mean, you know, you had to you had to fetch first dynamic service first, then you got dynamic service. The whole bootstrapping we could streamline that. But if mm-hmm. I look at the modern technologies like gRPC, for instance, for me, is no difference to Corba. It is exactly oh, the, yeah. s- the same. You know, scaffold overhead. And um, I'm thinking even if we just manage to make the Corba a, li- a little bit more usable, you know, we could just package it a little bit more with nice API. Uh, and and from my perspective, RMI had really nice API. You had an interface, you said lookup, and you got the implementation behind the scenes. I would say very similar to MicroProfile REST client, right? It is injected, but behind mm-hmm. the scenes, you could also inject RMI stuffs. It would be the same. And I'm just. It would be the same. Yeah, I'm just now playing with this idea. If I had a little bit more time to make an MP REST client, for instance, GP, uh, uh, gRPC capable, you could actually should be able, if you have the interface, you know, to create the. the uh, um, check the gRPC support in Quarkus. It's quite. Close to hey, you are too actually. fast, man. So you, you are destroying, you know, my leisure projects. This was <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah. It's actually not me. It's most uh, Michal uh, that did this work. Uh, okay. I just helping a little bit. Um, but the the fun thing, and so when you do Corba, one of the the main issues I quickly have is not the complexity of the code; it is handling failures. Mm-hmm. Because at that time the network was far from being reliable. Yeah. Um, it was mostly yeah keyboards. Keyboards got unplugged, or people walk on it, or well, you use yeah, and keep alive firewall. This was the big pain. You exactly. Know? If, there, if there was inactivity, we had just uh, we had just keep the connection open the entire. Yeah, you are right. But um, but people, you know, yeah. But this was never the criticism. What I heard the projects, you know, Corba is bloated, and we need something more lightweight. And we have now gRPC, which is uh, not that different. This is what I want there. Your argumentation is right from technical perspective, but from the programming perspective, not a lot of difference. You know, what what evolved a little bit? We have dependency injection right now, and back then we had to look up everything. So this was ugly. Well, yes, but exactly. So the people that complain about Corba say, yeah, Corba is bloated, it's complicated, there is this discovery things. That's the same people that invented web services. Yeah, with exactly. W star dark star yeah dark star <laughs> yeah let, let, let's cite a few of those amazing technology UDDI oh amazing yeah. who used UDDI yeah um, with addressing with eventing so okay SOAP was relatively nice and and well it was XML but it was okay but most of the specs that were added around this Make it even more bloated that Corba. Yeah, and and the development model uh, was was not there actually. It was it, they say yeah, it's it's language agnostic. Corba was language agnostic and was actually providing yeah um, language support. Well, in here you say well, okay, so in Java, what do I use? Uh, I remember used uh, Xfire for years. Yeah, um, then uh, CXF, which is, seems to be still a thing. Um, but yeah, that's, that's funny because yeah, Corba is bloated. Okay, let's do web services. Well, you know what's funny? And then uh, 
came REST. And they say, no, we don't need the code generation with REST. Everything, you know, we can do without. And uh, last week I had an architectural workshop and I was asked, uh, why I don't, I don't generate code for REST? <laughs> I see, yeah. Because if I would like to generate code for REST, I will take SOAP. Already, this is already ships with all major application servers. And uh, this is like a paradigm, you know. Uh, if you generate code, you are tightly coupled to the API. And you don't generate yeah. a code, you are more flexible. And this is the whole point of REST. So you have to decide in one point of time, what do you like to, to have, you know, more compatibility and more testing, or we are tightly coupled and, and we uh, let the compiler work, but we cannot have both, you know. We cannot have a strongly typed and 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 and, and uh, compatible for years Schnittstelle is German interfaces, right? So it's REST, the idea behind REST, um, take into account something called uh, well, hate EOS, so the leaks, yeah. so the fact that the clients can discover yeah. the API. Exactly. However, this has been very poorly implemented in most of the REST framework, which are, for me, mostly uh, HTTP-based RPC, mm -hmm. more than a REST representation yeah. of yeah. an API. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, if you consider uh, HTTP-based RPC, then you, you get some coupling and because of the RPC nature of it, and you may want to uh, to generate code. And what we're seeing these days is that we start seeing the emergence of schema yeah. and version schema, yeah. um, like version schema, but not not it's not the only one. There is a few others. Yeah. Um, well, we are always back to the same thing. We are this. We we want um, code generation, but we want evolutability and, and checking. So we do a schema. Didn't we have schema in in web services? Yeah, XSD, and, 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 and you know, and it never worked. You know, I, I, I did performed a lots of code reviews in SOAP projects, and then the end of the day, because they had schema, and schema was brittle, of course, because it's type safe. So most of the project used string array. You know, they had schema with a string array, everything in, everything out. But this conversation conversation is way too interesting. What I still don't know: what happened in your time between OSGI and Red Hat? What you did in that time? <laughs> um... Well, so I did my PhD on, on OSGI and on dynamism and uh, uh, home gateways and things like that. Oh, then you hated me be before, right? Because I was not that, uh, back then, I was not that, you know, positive about OSGI. And the funny story is, sometimes I've wrote a blog post, you know, we don't need OSGI for business applications. And I got a lot of heat. There were people, there was very passionate people about OSGI. And I got in Twitter, like, 100 messages. Wow how you can build monolith and and you know you are not modular you this is completely wrong and um they were very passionate about that but you seem that, to do nice you know so uh, I, there is passionate people every in every technology yeah. i think every technologies are pros and cons and yeah. you need to understand them and there is no so single technologies uh that fit everywhere even for quarkus yeah. so um it's 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 like it's technology there is no Silver bullets, yep. and people need to understand that that there is good way and various ways of doing the same thing. Um, so after that, so I, I moved to Berlin uh, for a few years, uh, where I did Android things. I continue my OSGI things, and uh, um, I started looking at um, front-end uh, technologies. Um, uh, nice, like yeah. Well. Um, I was trying to see if it was possible to do a CDI kind of things in JavaScript oh. for front end. Hopefully, you, you didn't not. initiate it Angular again. No, 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 no. Wow. <laughs> but no. Like, if this is your fault, you know, this is the second time. No, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, uh, I, I did uh, an interesting project, but yeah, it didn't really go um, anywhere. That was mostly showing that JavaScript is a little bit too permissive. So, uh, not. The first thing you need to do when you start doing such kind of things is to inject the concept of uh, interface. Yeah. Uh, what do you want to inject? What is the APIs? Doesn't really resonate well with with JavaScript, where you can do uh, a lot of things. And mixins really killed me because an interface can evolve over time, so it, it's kind of tricky. Um, and after that, um, I, I I did a few other things around mobiles and uh, uh, mobile development. I, Really quite was, I was really interested in mobiles and on the ability to to be able to generate this um, uh, iOS, Android, uh, Windows Phone because at that time it was still a thing yeah. um, uh, from the same uh, code base. So things like PhoneGap and JavaScript on okay. uh, based applications was was um, 
interesting. That's actually why I did my injection framework because these applications are complicated. Okay. Uh, and need to handle a, a bit of variability, like the, the, the camera API is different from Android. And, okay, this and, makes uh, sense. This makes sense. Uh, but this, again, um, it makes sense inside your framework, in the platform. But what I see in Angular, you know, they even have a code generator to start with because they create a module, the dependency injection, they have to generate three, four JavaScript or TypeScript classes. So there is zero variation. You always inject the same stuff. So I say, okay, yeah. why are you doing this? Just use the class and you know, game over. And, and down, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from all those front-end technologies these days. It just looks, what, what, it evolves too fast. So You know what I, what I do? I do exactly the same concepts from backend apply to the frontend and it takes off. We just use what's in the browser, no framework, web components, and you can build mm -hmm. amazing stuff with the same stuff we did 20 years ago in Java. And everyone is amazed. And I was even once at the uh, JavaScript conference and gave a talk and the and I just you know, used the Duke as an example. And the JavaScript developers asked me, who the hell is Duke? <laughs> I said, <laughs> sorry. It's like, sorry, I'm a Java developer. They don't have a Duke. So, uh, cool. So you did a front-end phone gap. Okay, this is a nice technology. Yeah, Interesting uh, stuff. Then I, I came back to the academic side. Okay. Um, and when I did, uh, when I came back to the academic side, I actually continued my research. I, I started uh, doing my PhD. I, I joined the same team and the landscape didn't evolve much in, yeah. in this in this in these times. I was still uh, OSGI, but I started to be a little bit more cautious about it, saying, okay, it's nice, but we start seeing really uh, hard time for developers to understand it, and that's never a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's uh, we, we have the same issue with Corba, we have the same issue with web services, so we, we may want to uh, simplify things a little bit. And after a few years there, uh, where I was advising PhDs and giving classes and, uh, and doing academic work, I started a, a project named uh, um, Wisdom, which was a, a web framework um, with a live reload. Uh, I, I really loved Play, actually, Play mm -hmm. One, uh, the Play One framework. I say, oh, I really want to have something like this with this velocity, both on the front and on mm -hmm. the back. Um, I want to see how far we can... Play One was Java OGI. and Play Two was Scala, right? Or other? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah that, that's, uh, that, that's right. Um, and... It was still based on OSGI, but I wanted to see how far we can go hiding OSGI. Mm -hmm. Like what you say, most of the things I was checking were build time. Yeah. So if you were using something where the runtime would have a different dependency, it would warn you immediately saying, well, no, 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 you need to decide what you want to do here mm -hmm. because uh, it's not the uh, same version. And, uh, and you didn't write any bundle. Everything mm -hmm. was bundleized for you based on the heuristic we have. So of course, if you know OSGI, can tune things, but most of the time you just want to import everything, export everything, mm -hmm. and let's see what happens. Yeah, and it's actually the fun thing is that initially I was using Netty in this web framework, and well, very quickly Netty code was was too complicated. We started doing uh, very small changes and without really understanding completely everything. It was breaking something else in the code base. We say, oh yeah, that looks weird. And at that time, I started uh, looking at Vertex. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, hey, look, that's like Netty. Netty mm -hmm. is underneath, but with a much nicer API and something I can easily integrate. Mm -hmm. So, and very quickly in our projects, we we, put, uh, we replaced Netty by Vertex. Well, mm -hmm. Netty is still there, but Vertex was our main API. And that made a big, big shift. Because while I was doing this, um, things around Reactive was starting to being a little bit more visible, I uh, started running the right manifestos. Uh, Vertex was becoming much more the thing I, w I was using uh, a, a lot more. And yeah, and uh, after a few other things, um, I decided to join Red Hat. And well, uh, Julien Biet, which was working in the, in the Vertex team, said, hey, there is some openings in the Vertex team, so try to apply it. That can mm -hmm. be really cool. And say, okay, why, why not? And Boom, a few weeks later, I was working at Red Hat, uh, initially on the Vertex project. I, it's, it's, it's a great, great uh, toolkit. Uh, we, it was a beginning. It was, it was actually, I joined just before we released Vertex 3. Mm -hmm. um, so it was all new, all new ideas. And 
it was resonated so much like, oh yeah, all the issues we had for with distributed systems for years actually are handled here, really are apparent here. We don't try to hide them. They are because mm-hmm. you can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you use code generation and so on, at some point, distributed systems are going to backfire. And yeah. when you, it backfires, you, you know, you know the uh, research paper note on distributed computing from Jim Waldo. Yes. The cool story yes. is uh, it was from Sun Microsystems, right? The guy, mm-hmm. and at the same time they tried to hide it. You know, this is uh, at the same time uh, Sun tried to hide, you know, the complexity of remoteness. And uh, research at Sunset is actually you not know, impossible to hide uh, the, that we are remote because because it's impossible. You cannot hide that the fact that we are working the, remotely, right? The funny thing is that the fallacies of distributed computing yeah. uh, also started uh, at Sun. Yeah, and Peter the, Deutsch and James Gosling, they were the guys behind. Exactly. Yeah, and one of the fallacies, I can't remember which one, has been added three years after the first set oh. uh, based on all those papers. Okay. Uh, so, so it was like, oh yeah, it's uh, uh, initially it was one less, and they added it uh, later. Um, so you worked in Vertex a long time, right? When, when you started with Vertex, when was it? Which year was it? 2012, I would say. Okay. 2012, 2013. Well, I'm still using Vertex a lot. So yeah, that's now almost seven years. Yeah, seven yeah. years with Vertex. With a lot of activities over the last five years where I was actually working on the project. Really Were you good. one of the uh, main guys behind Vertex in the, the last um, few years or...? Can you say that? Not in the last year, but before that, yes. Yes, okay. Um, I I moved a little bit separately. So after a few years of Vertex, uh, Vertex is an amazing toolkit, but it's it scares people. Yeah. Um, the, there's two things. There is a lot of people say the API scares me. Yeah. I don't believe it's an API problem. I believe it's more a misunderstanding of um, what distributed systems really are. Like there is no way of doing something different it's uh you you yeah okay what's called like but use futures use reactive programming whatever you you need to have this asynchronous nature mm-hmm. um somewhere in your code because the distributed system is uh is asynchronous and mm-hmm. um, so then i decided to look a little bit more to how to uh, evangelize vertex and i did a lot of conferences um very good one question uh, to you now uh what yep. what were your achievements in vertex or have you just you no know, bug fixes or features? What do you wanted to achieve with Vertex? Um, you worked for seven years, so you had a mission. So, what was your mission on Vertex? Yeah, well, um, I did a few things. Uh, the, I, I worked uh, on the launcher part that was also providing hot reload and things like that. Okay. I, I worked on the messaging part uh, with Stomp and later MQP, uh, how it was uh, uh, integrated inside the Vertex frameworks. I did a lot of microservices stuff because when microservices arose almost at the same time, and while Vertex had all the capabilities to be a great, and it's, it is a great microservice toolkit, um, things like service discovery, configurations, and things like that was, well, you, you had to develop them yourself as a developer. So I worked a lot there. Uh, so service discovery, configurations, so uh, uh, pluggable configuration, L checks. And actually, I believe LCX is the first time I started to be involved in microprofile. Okay. Uh, because um, Heiko Rupp and uh, who was. Uh, Heiko sounds right. Don't remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Heiko was there, and uh, someone else from, from Red Hat was. John Klingen, probably. About, no, uh, no, no, it was more on the engineering side. Yeah. Um, was uh, uh, We started discussing about exposing else. Mm-hmm. And we decided to implement the same model for both Vertex and MicroProfile. And mm-hmm. that what became MicroProfile um, uh, spec, the uh, health spec, yeah. the first version. Uh, do you uh, do you know Grizzly? You heard about Grizzly, Glassfish? Grizzly? Yeah, well, yeah. Grizzly was the only servlet container working in, in OSDI for years. So, yes, I used it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my opinion about Vertex and Grizzly is very similar. So, um, I'm a user of your technology developer. And I only re- uh, used Grizzly in cases where it was not possible to do otherwise. For instance, I remember back then, you know, Comet, the idea that you are pushing oh. stuff. And this was not possible back then with Java or servlets. So we used Grizzly to implement that. I probably was 10 years ago, uh, 12 years ago. I, I remember this uh, right now. And uh, and Vertex is the same. And uh, I get asked about Vertex a lot. Uh, get lots of questions about Vertex, and my uh, answer is actually the same. So if you if you can go with JAXORS and REST, just use it. You know, behind the scenes, if you use uh, Quarkus, it works Vertex anyway for you. 
there is no need, you know, to go that level down. So what interests me is what are the killer features of Vertex? Because for me, I just wanted to use the Vertex stuff, but I have to say, so JaxOS, serverless, and WebSockets were always enough. And for me, it's a huge advantage. I don't have to learn a particular framework. I learned the API. So for me, it's always a huge advantage, you know, because there's Vertex, there are other things. Akka was, I think, a few years ago. And uh, frameworks come and go. and uh, But the API, they, they remain. So you know a use case where you could say, I would use rather Vertex before I use JaxOS, servlets, or the API? If non-blocking uh, matters, then Vertex is uh, it's better. So why would non-blocking matter? When I say non-blocking, it's non-blocking I.O. Yeah. Um, it's because you face um, a use case where you have so much concurrency, so much message per second, so much, um, uh, I don't know, um, uh, request per second, that you cannot really rely on a worker thread approach, uh, which means that every request is yeah. handled by a separate thread, uh, which means that your concurrency is limited by the number of threads. Yeah. More thread you have, more memory and CPU cycles you have, yeah. uh, you, you are consuming. So that's really where Vertex makes a lot of sense. So if you build a business API, okay, yeah. that does not, if you have 10 requests per, per minute or even 10 requests per second, there is absolutely no problem with that. If you are building an API gateway that gets millions of requests yeah. per second, that's a different use okay. case. And, and, and there it's where Vertex fits. Um, then I was right. It means if you, if you, have speci- if you, if you need you know, more control over the metal and uh, then use you know, Vertex, something specialized, because I have far more control about everything. And if you use JaxOS or servlets, everything is hidden, and you can only hope that your runtime implements this right. And uh, back to the business application. So uh, back then, with Grizzly, there was an app. We had several thousand transactions per second. And I thought we can we will have to use Grizzly or Vertex, something else. But you know, back then, Glasses was just fine. So there was no reason to, to do something else. So I'm, I'm, I have uh, business applications, and but there are no millions of transactions per second. But uh, several hundred or several thousands, still not a problem. And usually, you can spread out. You have not one machine, you have multiple machines. No? And in business applications, you have another problem. <laughs> you have a database. So uh, it's just not like, you know, the application server was never the problem in my projects. If we get a problem, transaction, you know, I always the backend. This is what everything fails. Yeah. So the front end doesn't matter. But uh, now, now I got you. Because recently, what we did... Um, we wanted to uh, implement, or we actually implemented, um, uh, server sent events with Quarkus, actually. And there are two possibilities with Vertex and uh, JaxOS plane. And uh, my client started with Vertex, and I look at that and say, okay, it's cool, but do you really need it? You know, this level of control and level of detail, just go with JaxOS. And this was way simpler, and it still works, you know. So uh, it's, it's actually funny because Vertex does not support uh, uh, SSE directly, so you need to build on top of Vertex. Yeah, uh, which is fine. You can yeah. do it, but uh, it's something actually coming in inside uh, in Vertex Four. Um, but yeah, uh, well, it was actually you, in the Corpus guideline. Uh, there were two possibilities. There was one oh, was with reactive roads. You yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah, but it was vertex based. Vertex. There, there, was, there was the official you no know, Quarkus uh, documentation. One was vertex based with routes, and the other one was JaxOS. Okay, and uh, he picked the first one, which was a uh, vertex. And I say, okay. You can do this. The problem is, you know, if Vertex disappears or Quarkus get new version, we have to migrate. But if we use, you no know, JaxOS straight API, never was anything happen. And if this is too slow, we will measure the performance. We can just migrate back to Vertex. Not a problem at all. But now it works with JaxOS and it's fine. So, so that's the last point is actually quite important. Uh, in Quarkus, we want to unify imperative and reactive. And that means that you can build both imperative applications and yeah. reactive applications. But also mix them. So start with what is easier for you. Yeah. And if you realize that you, you hit um, performance issues or if it's not natural uh, for your use case, especially if you send events or things like that, um, you, you can revert just this part using the reactive APIs. Yeah. How, and, how it should be. And, yeah, so you, you just decide. You you can't write everything reactive. You can't write with, uh, everything imperative. There is no problem with this. But you can say, oh, yeah, but... Let's imagine you have one endpoint inside your JaxOS applications, which gets most of the traffic, mm-hmm. and is is really um, doesn't do much with transaction and things like that. So it's using threads for nothing, yeah. and it's actually reducing the velocity of the rest of the endpoint because yeah. the threads are used for this. You can decide that this endpoint 
hey, let's use a reactive roots uh, for this, just Perfect. for this endpoint. Perfect. And then you will be faster, so better user experience. Mm-hmm. And actually, not only for these routes, but because you save the worker thread used by this path, um, the other endpoints are going to be also faster. So you like, improve the user experience that way. Like bulkhead pattern on steroids, you know? You can say bulkheads without bulkhead because there's nothing to protect because no threats. And the others can go, you know, the regular request response route. And Perfect. I didn't even knew that you are so deep into the weeds with reactive programming. So one of the uh, most uh, asked questions also in my life is, uh, what is my opinion about reactive programming? And, and my answer, hopefully, um, uh, is compatible with your point of view. Uh, my answer is always, for stuff which is request-response, like JaxOS, JDBC, old drivers, and um, for, for SOAP or uh, serverless, forget about reactive programming anyway. It doesn't make any sense. Just go, you know, if you can request response synchronously out. But things which are on the horizon, like Kafka, WebSockets, SSE, this reactive programming is really nice because it just, it is right. You know, it is simple. The data flows in. You, you, it is already a series of events. So you can consider your data source as collection-like, you know, with a with an observer. So this is this is my point of view. But if you have to construct the source of events from request response, forget it. Because the problem is, you know, if you wait too short, you get timeout. The question is, did something happen or not? You have a lots of problems to solve. And all attempts I saw, you know, to uh, to use reactive programming for old school request response protocols, they were crazy complex and the error handling was complex. So what's your take on that? So first, reactive programming um, best place is definitely event-driven microservices and event-driven applications. So uh, consuming events and uh, writing events and doing all those um, this processing in between. Reactive programming can be also interesting for request reply not necessarily as a stream, but mostly uh, what in Mutiny we call uni, uh, which is uh, um, composing asynchronous sections. Okay. Because imagine an endpoint which gets a request, but this request needs to call other services uh, to, mm-hmm. to, com- well, to compute its uh, uh, outcome. Mm-hmm. You don't know if those uh, remote services are there, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a microservice system. Um, or distributed systems, so things may fail, things may time out. There is plenty of things like that. You can do it in an operative way, but well, basically you are blocking your thread for an undetermined amount of time. Yeah. You, you don't know because maybe the service that you are calling is just playing slow right now. Yeah. Or maybe you are eating an instance that is slow, but the next call you will do is going to be pretty fast because the other instance is pretty fast. It's the beauty of distributed systems. You cannot, yeah. you don't know anything. So, But this is optimization here, again, right? This is, uh, again, optimization, how many threads are consumed. Yeah, well, yes, because it's also important for the response time, for the global response time, because you you are going to reduce your response time if you start doing things like that. Yeah. And it, dep- it depends. It always depends... Um, on the users, at the end of the day, what we want is to make our users happy. Yeah, but and this users happy means relatively fast. It needs to uh, to be what I call near real time, so they don't see that something costly happened mm-hmm. uh, behind behind their back. That oh yeah, it's there already. Wow, cool. Okay, then I got you. So, but um, it only works if you provide me the platform. It means. It, it works from top to the bottom. So what I saw, yeah. you know, the all attempts of the reactive programming back then, that they tried to run it on top of Tomcat or whatever. This, does, this doesn't make no. any sense. Then you got That to, doesn't make sense. Yeah. You, you, to, to benefit from reactive, in this use case, you absolutely need a non-blocking IO layer. The whole stack, yeah. It's a whole stack. And in Quarkus, that's our reactive core. Yeah, which this is makes sense. This makes sense, yeah. But, because, yeah, on, on but top of that. you are argumenting, you know, from the optimization perspective. What I hear you know, in projects and conferences, they, they say, okay, this is the beauty of, and this is not beautiful. So for request response, you can save you know, resources. And the only beautiful uh, usage of reactive programming in my eyes is for already for event streams. That is, you have one method, you know, incoming, outgoing, you are set. Or you have, yeah, yeah there's nothing else to do. But uh, if you would use you know, the imperative approach or the request response approach, I will have to, in the while loop, like you know, the low-level Kafka API, which is terrible, 
No, give me the next byte, give me the next byte, and then do something with it. This forget about completely. This is like, you know, programming in 1950s with Java. And the funny stuff is what I see in projects, just to you, they say, oh, Kafka is great. And what they do, they, they use the low level, the lowest level Kafka. It's like, why are you not using Kafka streams at least, you know, or, or Quarkus uh, reactive messaging? This is the beauty of Kafka then, but not playing with byte arrays and while loops. So first, um, the Kafka is it's a it's a new paradigm in the messaging uh, landscape. Uh, it's not that new, but it's something that a lot of people are uh, seeing Kafka as a new JMS or the new yeah. <laughs> uh, RabbitMQ or the new uh, whatever you use um, yeah. uh, MQ series. So that's wrong. Absolutely. It's a really, totally different. Yeah. And if you believe that you can do uh, replace GMS with Kafka, that won't work. Yeah. Kafka it's is more a database. Really yeah, it's more a database than uh, the messaging system. It's exactly opposite it's a architecture. Distributed log. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a distributed log. Yeah. So it doesn't fit. It, it's, it, that doesn't work. Um, one of the tricky things we see with Kafka is that it looks simple. Uh, it's okay, I pull, I do things. Oh, it's going to uh, commit my uh, offsets automatically. Yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty nice. Well, in reality, it's not that simple. You need to understand a lot of things before using it uh, correctly. And that's one of the dangers I see around around Kafka. And it's it's not the Kafka technologies. It's more we need to educate people to use Kafka yeah. correctly. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Funny, funny story. Uh, one of my clients, uh, they do a uh, lot of IoT actually, and I said, actually, okay, in your case, Kafka makes sense. So, um, and uh, they use Whitefly and they use Quarkus, and uh, I think I I, uh, I provide consulting for them for one year already. Already, and they still, you know, they would like to keep their database plus Kafka, and then then the problem starts. It's okay, forget your database. We can use your database as a car, uh, as a cache, but your Kafka is the thing. So we put everything in Kafka and database just for convenience. And the next meeting, you know, how to do two-phase commit between database and Kafka. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we just use Kafka. Forget the database, right? Um, so it's interesting. But uh, you are perfect. So your background uh, amazed me. So we have not that much time. Otherwise, it's going to boring. But two things I would like at least to introduce today is uh, uh, mutiny. I saw Ken Finnegan was the first commit and you are the most active guy on the uh, mutiny project. Ken did the first one. How can no, I actually started the project? But he did the first commit. I, I I was curious because you are the the mutiny guy, and Ken Finnegan did the he did the first commit and then he disappeared somehow, and then <laughs> and then you uh, took over. So why are you doing uh, I mutiny? I created the repositories. And yeah, then, you do it. Ah, okay. Yeah, so I created the initial commit of the repository, and yeah. then I started putting my. Ah, so, okay. So the Ken is more a manager, right? So we can. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, he's the one with the admin rights. Admin so rights, okay. We need to always please people with the admin rights, you know, because so, they can also delete a repository. So, so we have to be nice to Ken, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, uh, Ken helped a lot, actually, at the beginning of Mutiny, and mm -hmm. he's now helping a lot on reactive messaging. So um, he's not a reactive guy by background. He's starting becoming a reactive guy, and it's very interesting to see uh, his point of view from a more uh, enterprise uh, background. Uh, how it's approach uh, reactiveness. It's it's very interesting for me because that's from this feedback from from this experience, uh, um, I can I can try to improve and make things uh, simpler for enterprise developer. I don't. I, I so, think Ken really hates me, and, and the reason is there was a Java One conference, right? And I did my micro micro profile with Whitefly talk, or or I use White Whitefly, and it worked perfectly. Whitefly is small enough for me, and whatever. And he came to me after the talk with John and asked me. Uh, what is what is your opinion about uh, Thorntail or Whitefly Swarm? And I say, swarm for, yeah, for, for, for me, I say, Whitefly Swarm, no use case. Whitefly is already small enough, forget about that. And they already was like, no, I don't get it. So a little optimization for me, nothing, right? And oh, they were a little bit, they, they expected something else, right? And I never used Whitefly Swarm, completely ignored. And then um, Red Hat came to me again and said, hey, we worked on something new. So, not again. So you so renamed Thorntail to something else. And then I look at Quarkus and say, oh, this is amazing. The first time, there is really different. There is something behind, you know, this was, th th therefore, uh, I have to ping Ken one point of time because to apologize at least <laughs> for my, there's there no time, you know, there's a, uh, he came to me at 10 minutes to, 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 for conversation. This was my answer. And then I had to, to, to go home. Um, yeah. But, um, but uh, mutiny. Why you started Mutiny if you had Vertex? Actually, I started Mutiny because of Vertex. Ah. Or thanks to Vertex. 
uh, more than because of. Um, while I was doing Vertex, so for uh, almost seven years, um, I did a lot of conferences, uh, talks, uh, um, uh, customer meetings, and things uh, and things like that. And every time I was trying to teach Vertex or teach uh, reactive programming, so asynchronous programming, I see that people have difficulty to understand it, to 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 really uh, grasp the nature of what it is, mm-hmm. um, and. Very quickly, we started advocating for Eric Java uh, as a primary API for uh, end users in, mm-hmm. in Vertex. Not primary, but one of the most used API. And we say, oh, yeah, Eric is nice. Um, I'm, we're still on the future side of things, but okay, Eric, there is uh, cool stuff, lots of operators. And we started putting these technologies in the hand of customers and, and users and in conferences. And very quickly, I had always the same question, like, oh, what does flat map do in this case? Oh, what's the difference between flat map and, and concat map? What is this operator doing? Oh, and what is this variant of, of things? And what I realized, or what we realized, because uh, Stefan Epardo uh, found uh, the same observation, is that to use this reactive programming um, correctly, you need to know probably two to 300 methods. Mm-hmm. You believe that you can start with, oh, no, I, I only know five, six stands, and I can build from that. But actually, no. You really need to understand a big part of the APIs. It's hard today when, when you are an enterprise developer to say, oh, yeah, I need to learn this new API, but this new API is gigantic. Mm-hmm. It's like hundreds of operators, and if I don't know, not all of them, but most of them, I'm probably going to do something wrong. Mm-hmm. And one of the things is, I, I had a customer meeting where people say, oh, yeah, I'm using Kafka, and then I'm doing that, and say, oh, you're doing what? That, this. I say, no, you are messing up with the order. And I say, no, Kafka won't like this at all. And then they think about it, they say, oh, no. And they realize that they were wrong, and they start changing mm-hmm. the code live during the meeting. I say, oh, no, no, maybe think about it first, but anyway. And, we, what we realized is that people were not necessarily understanding it. Mm-hmm. So you had the IP few that spend time to really understand it and use it uh, beautifully and elegantly, and they are really happy with that, and there's nothing wrong with this. It's still great. But for people uh, not having the time to really do that, we need something a little bit more uh, easier to use. And we, we mentioned it. Reactive makes sense when you use event-driven, yeah. um, event-driven microservices. And when you do event-driven microservices, what you expect to write is things like on item X, mm-hmm. do Y. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to see what we can build around this idea about, okay, I got a stream, on item, do this. Mm-hmm. On failure, do that. On completion, do something else mm-hmm. or continue with. So something much more... F- fluid, something that people will understand what they are doing and you are not lost in a map and flat map jungle where you have no idea what's happening. But you still need flat but you still need flat map, right? We renamed it. Actually uh-huh. we are flat map, but our flat map there is two variants. You can do on item transform, on item transform to uni, on item transform to multi. Uh, so you just you really see what it's doing. On item transform to uni you say okay, I got an item. And I'm going to return a new uni, which is an asynchronous action, which will take this item as parameters and do something. And once this asynchronous action come back, then you will do the next thing. And then you will say, then on item, do something else. Okay. And we really wanted to have this event-driven nature apparent inside our API. Um, it's been a challenge. It's actually funny because people from... Um, Functional people from the right space say, oh, yeah, so that's totally useless. We don't need this. And enterprise people were starting saying, yeah, we don't necessarily understand it. We work on the API. And these days, we got really, really good feedback. Like people saying, oh, I finally understand Reactive. I finally can write event-driven microservices. Okay. And that's actually the best, well, the most motivating uh, uh, thing that people can say to me and say, oh, yeah, we did something which really push the limits of make it easier for enterprise developers that are not used to such kind of logic to write such kind of um, of okay. applications. So is, we, we, so is Mutiny a DSL around Vertex? It's, it's not 
uh, it's not based on Vertex. It's a, it's a DS, it's a reactive programming library, which has a very different APIs. Um, and it's just a, an API. And okay. to, to use Vertex, what we do, and that's the Vertex, um, uh, secret source, that we take the Vertex API and we generate the mutiny variants with the mutiny types for the complete API. That's okay. how Vertex works, actually. Vertex has one bare API. And from this, we generate every Java, Scala, and well, it, it changed a little bit uh, recently, but for, for years, it works that way. And for Mutiny, we do the same. We take these APIs and generate our Mutiny variants. But you can use Mutiny with uh, the REST client, the Quarkus REST client, with um, almost any, anything in, in Quarkus. We have Hibernate Reactive, which is now a uh, 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 new extension. Um, uh, all our data sources have a Mutiny API, Mongo, Cassandra, and so on. So you can start Postgres, doing the reactive Postgres driver properly. Uh, the reactive Postgres driver that now you can use using Hibernate Reactive. So mm-hmm. if you like SQL, if you if you really uh, want to control your SQL, you can still use this reactive driver. If you are more on the Hibernate side and want your um, uh, entities and things like that, you can use Hibernate Reactive, and it gets a, a Mutiny session with all the Mutiny types, so you can easily use that. Mm-hmm. Um, it uses a reactive Postgres driver underneath, mm-hmm. which means that it's completely non-blocking and reactive. Um, and yeah, and Mutiny is, is the, the API that glue all these things together where you have one thing, which is event-driven, which lets you uh, compose your asynchronous actions, do your event-driven um, handling and processing. Okay. Uh, can you, can you use Mutiny outside Quarkus? No. Uh, is this, uh, no, you, you can, you can. It's okay. actually used outside of Quarkus, okay. uh, which was not anticipated initially, uh, but... Um, there is nothing in the code base of Mutiny which is Quarkus-centric or okay. which is Vertex-centric. Mutiny is just a plain API that you can use anywhere. Okay, then just a jar. For me, from technical perspective, so the uh, Mutiny is an API. For me, sounds like mm-hmm. facade because I could uh, yeah. aggregate several things. How to load the service provider interface to Mutiny? So I have the API, so I cannot launch Mutiny. I will need at least JDK 9 with some reactive stuff from JDK, I assume, or something reactive. Is it not usable mm-hmm. by itself, right? Mutiny. It's just you, API. It's like JDBC. I cannot launch JDBC. I need the Oracle driver, right? Uh, yeah. Well, if you use API as a standalone thing, you can do a few interesting things like timers and um, okay. and things like that. But it's not really interesting. What you will need is reactive APIs because what you want to do, and it's the same thing in, in any application, yep. what you want to do is to compose call to provide added values. Yeah. And, and how? what is the bridge between my reactive API and Mutiny? So how to launch it, you know? Is there something like... Reactive Factory create something, what I get back is already Mutiny, so what is the bootstrap? Most of our uh, APIs uh, are delivering already uh, uh, tailored Mutiny APIs. So, for example, if you take um, the REST client, yeah. you just return a, a uni instead of um, oh. a completion stage or instead of a, a string, so uni or string, and that's it. And okay. then you get the unis that you can compose with another one, that you can under no, it. you can under retries. So we need a a event stream source which returns a mutiny type and then I go, right? Perfect. So we we provide, you can do uni.create from and here you have plenty of them. Oh, okay, uh, cool. Create from ticks, create from uh, interval, create from range, create from uh, emitters. Uh, so we, we have an API to let you create your source. But most of, well, even all the time, what you need is to have a reactive client underneath that's actually going to expose this API yeah. for you. You're not going to create um, well, I'm creating something from, so typically I, I, I got a lot of comments say, oh, I don't understand. Uh, reactive is slow. Um, and the guy was, was returning a, a uni and the code. So it was a Jack's RSN point returning a uni because yeah. we support this. And the code was simply uni create from item hello. Mm-hmm. I was like, of course it's slower. How can it be faster? You are creating an asynchronous construct with a result that you already know. So. Yeah. Remove this, return hello, and you're good. Yeah. So that is going to be much simpler. Yeah, but this is what I see all the time, you know. This is why I cannot hear reactive programming. When I hear reactive programming, it's always that case. They have you know, some Java methods and try to synchronous method. They have nothing to do with reactive, and they just try to write a wrapper around it to have reactive programming, you know. This is what that's I see. Forget it, because you get all the problems, everything, you know, breaks then. That, that's... Except if you really want to compose asynchronous actions. Yeah, workflow, you, you know, workflow engine or hub or something. If you have some, you know, this is this this makes sense. Absolutely. But this is a this is not a common use case. No, yes. And and yeah, and there is no problem with this. And actually, um 
If you use reactive messaging, you mention it. Um, if you have at incoming and at ongoing, and actually that was a question I had last week. Uh, so someone wrote his, his method that was getting a order and returning uh, something else. And he said, I don't understand. Where is mutiny? I said, but, you know, here you get an item in, you return an item out, you don't need anything. Mutiny mm-hmm. is underneath. You don't yeah. see it. Crash, throw a null pointer exception, look at the stack trace and you will see mutiny. Mm-hmm. But if you do things correctly, you won't see it. Mm-hmm. Use it when you really need to do uh, asynchronous action or react upon events. Yeah. As we said at the beginning, there is no silver bullets. It's not one thing fits all. That's why in Quarkus we want both imperative and reactive side by side. And you decide where you put the cursor yeah. and you can even move it. Yeah, we shouldn't mention Quarkus anymore because we will speak for another two hours. So here's the deal. Uh, we should stop now. And I would like to reinvite you back because it's not a problem. We have in the, it's the same time zone. And I would like to talk a little bit about Vertex, Quarkus, and Mutiny because it's a very interesting topic. And uh, yeah, and, and why I like Quarkus, the final words, because it's extremely pragmatic. You know, this is what why I like it. Because, uh, um, you know, back then, I, I, I repeated it over and over again, but... Uh, the 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 fun fun fact in Quarkus is it does a lot of work at build time and is uh, simple at runtime. So this is the entire trick. And I have to admit, I uh, for me always Whitefly and Glassfish and the others were fast enough. You know, there, for me was no need for optimization. But uh, Quarkus is so different; it, it optimizes a lot. This is not like ten or fifty percent. You know, um, um, optimization is more like fifty percent optimization or more. So it it makes a huge difference. So now I can go to my client and say, look, if you use Quarkus, we save you know, 50% of memory, then it's discussion over and now focus on business. So this is a, a big deal. So thank you a lot. And um, I would like to, like to re-invite you back. It was really interesting to chat with you. you know? I learned a lot. And uh, the big thank O notation, you know, this was the beginning of learning <laughs> and with Mutino is even better. So uh, thank you for having me. And uh, yes, no problem. Just uh, invite me whenever you want. Uh, I would be very happy to I'll spend another hour with you. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye.